Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we romp through the latest tech and IT news. We've got uh, new AWS services coming out of reInvent, military 5G, space networking, and more. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash network break and get 30% off all plans. When you use the promo code network break at checkout, that's itpro.tv slash network break and get 30% at checkout. Uh, we're also sponsored by the Internet Society. Getting internet access from low Earth orbit satellites has great promise for addressing the digital divide, supporting disaster response, and creating new opportunities for communication. If you're curious about how all these systems work, as well as the technological and policy implications, download the free white paper, Perspectives on Low Earth Orbit Satellite Systems for Internet Access by the Internet Society. Just go to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. That's internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. And last but not least, stick around. After the news, we have a Tech Bytes conversation with sponsored Thousand Eyes. We're going to examine some outages that had, uh, hit Microsoft and Google. We'll find out how they happened and what applications were affected, why it's not always the network, and good tips for workarounds when a SaaS app goes down. All right, let's get into news. First, AWS has announced a secure network access service called Verified Access. It supports remote or local secure access to corporate applications without the need for a VPN client. You're just using a browser plugin on the client side. It's currently supporting Chrome and Firefox. Yeah, we've seen a lot of this uh, coming from various off-premise providers. So Cloudflare did this, well, I want to say, a couple of years ago mm -hmm. when I think it's part of their Cloudflare One portfolio. And then, of course, other companies like Zscaler and so forth also do something similar. So um, sort of a sign that AWS is now having to meet what enterprises want. They don't get to say, well, you should just access it from within, you know, like you <laughs> shouldn't need a VPN to access us. You should work out how to sort this out yourself sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sort of a recognition that if you want customers to be all in on your service or you want enterprise customers to get in, because of course this week was AWS reInvent in the US, which is typically one of the bigger events where they make a lot of their announcements. And somebody said to me, there was an awful lot of jeans and jackets. What they meant was there's a lot of people from the enterprise wearing, uh, you know, business coat jackets. Mm-hmm. And, and sh business shirts, and he, he thinks that AWS is definitely pivoting away from the old developer crowd to the enterprise. Ah, uh, sort of like I see, I see, okay. So, so if you believe that, and I generally believe this is true, is that AWS is turning this sort of services, you know, we need a VPN to access our stuff on AWS, and up until now it's been like, oh, yeah, go and get a third-party thing. We don't do that. You should just access SSH, right? You know, directly in through the front end or mm -hmm. have a, have a you know, direct connect service in the back to do your admin. This is kind of a, you know, realization that if you want enterprise money, you have to come meet them where they are. You can't drag them to where you want them to be. Uh, yeah, I guess I could buy that. Yep, I, I suppose. Um, it's, uh, and I AWS has already built a lot of the elements for this, including their identity and access management service, which this ties into. They're also uh, letting you use third-party identity services like Duo, letting Octoping, you use. and others. How generous of them, Trey. <laughs> supporting. So I generous. Say supporting. <laughs> I was going to say, like, the interesting thing about this is they're actually acknowledging that there are services outside of their own that people will want to use. That was a surprise. Well, I think they've done that before, particularly with security mm. in the past, because security is not a thing they've focused on uh, so much. Mm. So, and that—that's where this is. Uh, they're uh, aside from supporting third-party identity providers, they're also supporting client-based security uh, mm -hmm. products, so that if you want to do device posture checks, uh, you can integrate that as well. Yeah, well, they're quoting a whole bunch of logos: uh, CrowdStrike, Jamf, Okta, IBM, Rapid7, mm -hmm. all saying, you know, we're ready to integrate our. Seams, XDRs, Ida, you know, zero trust identity management, blah, blah, blah. All that's integrated with this tool. So uh, it seems like it's something that should have been done a while ago. And that's what it feels like to me. Well, my take on this, as far as I can tell, I think this is service, this uh, secure access, secure remote access is just for applications you have running in AWS VPCs. Um, so mm. obviously that yeah. makes sense as a starting point for AWS, but if I'm an enterprise and I'm trying to run multiple remote access schemes, so one for AWS and another for all my other corporate and SaaS apps, that seems unwieldy. Uh, mm. So I wonder if this is AWS beginning to dip its toes in the water of SASE. I could see them mm. somewhere down the line coming out with a more fully fledged, we'll take care of all your access control uh, and cloud delivered security services. I don't think, I think Amazon starts and finishes at the end of its data centers. Even its outpost business really is nominally just 
you know, you make their data center or something. Mm-hmm. I'm, and, you know, if you're going to do SASE, you, you can't just say, there are SASE providers who say you run into our POPs, but that requires a lot of POPs to make that work properly. AWS has a lot of POPs. And, uh, not really. They actually have a very limited number of data centers, not a lot of POPs at all. Whereas if you look at somebody like Cloudflare, they have POPs everywhere. So you, you're you responsible to get into their POPs, but then they take it over from there. Or uh, Prosimo or Aviatrix or, you know, Akira, all those companies who do backbone bypass, mm-hmm. they're all doing it. They actually put POPs in, you know, Equinix and local providers as well as AWS and Azure to find the best path in. So mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think AWS would be able to do that. That's always a business that they wouldn't want to be in, I don't believe. Um but mostly the thing with this is that it feels like when you first go to AWS, the first thing you want is a VPN to access your hosts. Right. Right. And then, of course, that, of course, will incur technical debt, but that comes later. But this is about onboarding enterprises who don't know, who have this security policy that says, if you want to access, it must be over a VPN. Okay. Now we've got a VPN. Right. I, I'm, I assume it's better than, you know, if I'm using my traditional VPN client and then having to trombone or backhaul, you know, into my VPN gateway and then back out to an AWS app, this would be better. I'd get better performance. But again, that's operationally, I think... Or, Organizations aren't going to want to have to support two different access methods, one just for AWS apps and one no, for No, in the long else. term. So no. in the long term. And I, the flip side here is that because it only happens in a browser, only browser traffic. Right. It's only, So it's not yeah. a true VPN. It's a faux, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I yeah, we'll, maybe I'll put this on the spreadsheet then to see if uh, AWS eventually gets into more robust, uh, secure remote <laughs> yeah. access. We'll see. Yes. Yeah, so it's not an IPSEC tunnel where anything can go down. This is just a right. browser. Yeah, just a browser plugin. a web page. Yeah. Yeah. All right, link in the show notes if you want to dig into the details. Uh, in other networking-related news to come out of reInvent, AWS announced a preview of a service called VPC Lattice for application layer networking. Uh, conceptually, VPC Lattice sounds to me like a service mesh, but it's spanning multiple VPCs. So you can connect and monitor application services and functions that run as instances, on VMs, or as serverless. Uh, so for example, if I've got an application and it relies on a service running in one VPC and another service running as a Lambda function somewhere, and then a third service running on a VM in a different VPC, Lattice is going to stitch it all together for me, give me that observability, give me that management and control over how I'm routing all these together. Yeah, it's really interesting because it does rely on uh, application inspection or application recognition and then steering. And you actually create a policy about how you want to steer traffic between, you know, sources and destinations. So you have you have to define a set of rules and the rules are look a lot like access lists, you know, top to bottom, mm-hmm. um, explicit matches. And then you define a set of targets. So if you want this to talk to that, you define a set of targets and then AWS will stitch it together. So I agree. It looks a lot like a service mesh from what I could read of the documentation, but it's not a service mesh just within a Kubernetes container environment. It's across all of the VPCs. So right. my guess here is, is they're using the um, DPUs inside of their infrastructure. You make a set of rules and then the DPUs recognize that, match those rules, and if it's and then drop it into a an EVPN of some sort, some sort of overlay network, and then transport it to all the destinations on your behalf, and then away you go. And because it's all done in the DPU, it doesn't impact the operation of your machine, and it also scales reasonably well. So there would be the ability to have a very large number of these dynamic overlays. You're not stuck, you know, trying to do them in the network switches, which wouldn't scale. And, you know, you're not trying to propagate. You're just thumping the packets into an overlay at the edge of the network in a DPU. That's uh, an interesting guess. I don't know. They didn't mention DPUs or their Nitro no. uh, in the in the announcement, so we don't get a real hint in how they're providing this abstraction layer to you. But, yeah, I guess that's a, that's definitely it a would potential. have to be. I can't see them doing it in the switch, you know, and or on a legacy. Even a smart NIC wouldn't be enough. It would have to be done in a, you know. You've got to process the rules, break them down, load them into the ASIC type thing. And then uh, AWS already has, you know, did brag about its AWS Nitro and its new generation of chipsets again. So, right. Yeah. They do have that to take advantage of. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the thing I like about it is that um, with folks building distributed applications in the public cloud, this provides like a nice, useful, logical construct. Uh, particularly as you're trying to move those applications sort of beyond the realm of ownership of developers into more of that operations uh, policy enforcement kind of place because it gives you this sort of uniform place to see what's connected where and how Mm. and do some basic observability and troubleshooting when you're trying to diagnose problems with distributed applications. So it makes perfect sense for uh, AWS to be rolling this out. 
Yeah, it's also interesting to think that this might be the end of EVPNs. So we'd see a lot of modern data centers doing orchestration, you know, down to the switch. Mm-hmm. And this might be where we're headed, which is you drop, and this is how I see it headed, certainly, when and if all of your servers get a DPU in them, you can actually just instantiate them dynamically in the DPU. Why do the encapsulation in the switch hardware? Why not just do it in the server? That's far more sustainable and far more scalable and far more granular because the switching ASICs are very slow. You know, they're fast, but they're not very flexible. And then every time you add another server, you're adding more scale, right? Whereas in switching, you're always limited by maximum number of VPNs according to the, you know, the memory and the, and the forwarding tables, blah, blah, blah. So putting a DPU in every server in the rack gives you more policy control. Yeah. And then the, that top of rack switch is just there to pump those packets fast as possible. That's right. I mean, at the limits of what we do today in an EVPN, we say if you come in on this interface, physical interface or this sub-interface, you get put into this EVPN and there's just micro-segment. Well, why not do this, which is, you know, you'll still have that in the future, but now what we'll say is, oh, I've got some application rules. I want all of this traffic to go to these destinations for a short period of time. I want you know, these group of servers for when they're sending HTTPS traffic for this application to go into this service mesh. Boom, where we go. No need to configure the physical network. Back to that classic cycle of, do I want to push intelligence into the network or pull it out uh, and just have the network push traffic as fast as I can? Yes. At the end, the edge ultimately always wins. That's the lesson I've learned over the years. You know, we tried to do intelligence in the network, in the WAN, in the data center. And then, you know, we tried to do it in the core switches and then it moved to the edge switches and then it moved into the hosts, into VPN. You know, it always ends up at the edge eventually. Um, so I would always bet on the edge versus the core. Uh, something else for the prediction sheet then. That's two today. Yeah. <laughs> All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is online technical training to help you start or grow your IT career. For instance, cybersecurity, there's more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles, and you can become a CyberSec Pro with online training from IT Pro TV. If security is not your thing, no problem. IT Pro TV has you covered with all sorts of courses across the IT spectrum, from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. They have more than 5,800 hours of on demand training. Instructors are live every day. Shows go to studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certified and job role so it's easy to find what you're looking for. You can also learn from wherever you are on whatever platform you consume media with. So IT Pro TV's courses are available live and on demand via Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak and get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak. Uh, back to the news, the social media company Hive Social had to shut down its services for a couple of days to address critical vulnerabilities that could have allowed attackers to access all data on the site. That includes private messages, deleted messages, and user emails and phone numbers. Uh, we know that many people are exploring new social media options after Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. Uh, Ars Technica reports that Hive Social's user base jumped from 1 million to 2 million in just a few weeks, and that Hive was staffed by just two people. <laughs> so that's a lot for two people to handle. Yeah, it's funny. Um, we haven't talked about Elon Musk's uh, takeover of Twitter here because it's just nothing really to say. It's just the signs of a new CEO taking over a company, demonstrating a fairly high level of incompetence, but at the same time doing some of the things that's needed to turn the business around. Twitter was stuck in, at a big, uh, a big bit of a problem time, so it's kind of weird. Hmm. So at the end of the day, I don't think Twitter will fail. So I'm not out looking for alternatives. I think a lot of other people are. And I guess if Twitter fails, you can find me at the, on the blogs at Packet Pushes or at Ethereal Mind. And that'll be it. I'll go back to what I used to do. <laughs> yeah, just to round out this story, uh, the a security collective called Zerforshung published a post claiming to have found numerous critical vulnerabilities. They said they reported to Hive Social. Uh, the collective also released a video claiming to show proof of an exploit that would let an attacker overwrite data on other users' posts. Uh, ironically, Hive Social announced its two-day shutdown over Twitter, which is kind of funny. <laughs> uh, I mean, I frankly, you know, building a robust, safe social network is hard. Twitter now is pretty stable, but if you remember the early days, there was a lot of fail whale. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. But for a young company like Hive or Mastodon, um, if particularly in this time of sudden, unexpected, surprising growth, yeah, you're going to run into issues. Yeah, I, 
I don't think much of this. I don't think Hive, you know, Mastodon's not really a viable alternative. Some people are enjoying it as a fresh new community, but once it scales, I think it'll run into the same problems. So, yeah. yeah. It might. Uh, speaking of which, I am on Mastodon. I decided to check it out. I'm at Drew underscore CM on the Mastodon.social instance if you want to come over and see what it's like. Uh, it's just like Twitter, except uglier, in my opinion. <laughs> but there are interesting people <laughs> there, so I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's probably fine because the scam, okay. You know, the scammers haven't come. They haven't come yet. I'm sure they will if enough people, that's the thing. If enough people go somewhere, so do the attackers and the scammers. So that's the, kind of the mm-hmm. price of success. Uh, moving on, U.S. aerospace company Lockheed Martin says it has successfully tested a 5G base station designed to operate on military aircraft. The base station includes a 5G open RAN radio access network uh, using Intel Xeon processors and Intel's Flex RAN reference architecture. Yeah, I we've, we've talked about 5G over the time. You know, what are we going to do with it? Is there really a, a use for 5G in the public? And it's and I still believe that 5G for public mobile phone companies is much more useful as a more effective infrastructure. So it's a software-defined infrastructure, software-operated. So it'll reduce costs and simplify further upgrades. Because it's important to remember that 5G is not a fixed standard. There's this 5G, which is kind of the first version. And I think they're already up to Schedule 18, which is the 18th extension to the standard. And there's Mm. more coming, 26, Mm -hmm. 32, you know, and so forth. And so um, 5G is not like the old days of 2G and 1G where it just, you shipped it and that was it. You know, that was all you got. They're very uh, dynamic and they keep changing and adding and they're very flexible. Um, but this is the private 5G and we've seen the vendors talk a lot about private 5G. We've done another show, a lot of shows about private 5G and people are saying, you know, if you're a mining company or a factory, you can put up a private 5G and you get a lot of advantages about, uh, high, you know, better than Wi-Fi, but at the compromise. I hadn't considered the military application. If you think about it from a military point of view, you can use a whole bunch of spectrum. You can move it around, which makes electronic warfare kind of difficult. It means Mm -hmm. that you get to use off-the-shelf chips and software. You know, a lot of the chips, if you want to have handsets and stuff, you can just get the ones that are, um, you know, you could even get an Apple iPhone and then do something to it in the software to make it secure so that the enemy can't, you know, Mm-hmm. break open the communications but all of this and we've seen in the war in ukraine that the communications has become a massive problem because it needs a lot of data they want to send images you know right. fly a drone over and today what they do is the drone downloads it to the phone then they they once the drone comes back they then upload it to head office over a data connection which then analyzes it It'd be a lot more effective if the drone could just be streaming an image to a tank or an artillery unit and they can they could just make targeting data off that mm-hmm. and i think you know this is a 3ru 5g base station that could work as an ad hoc network that's that's got real capabilities i, I think this might be something and the military's got a lot of money to spend on this sort of stuff let's face it <laughs> so um i think it's interesting to think about it yeah I, I think the fact that they're going with oran which is an industry effort to support 5G using commodity hardware, software-defined virtualized architectures. Uh, and uh, Lockheed Martin actually calls out that they're, the, the reason they're doing this is to uh, prevent vendor lock-in. I presume Lockheed Martin excludes themselves from that lock-in. But uh, the fact that they are going O-RAN, I think, is interesting. And the second thing is that they're talking about putting this uh, 3RU ruggedized base station into th- something like a jet fighter. So uh, mm-hmm. not the typical use case. That, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's got, I, I could see like you know a, a bunch of tanks and they'd have some sort of you know <laughs> yeah you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're running 5g from the back of the tank to support communications for all the other tanks and the troops and stuff yeah it makes sense uh, i will say reading the press releases are interesting because the collision of military and technical jargon was a little head spinning it's nice to know we're not the only ones who can uh, write a sentence that doesn't necessarily mean anything unless you are deep <laughs> in the weeds <laughs> yeah uh, so you can go check that out. We have a link in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. Uh, another break to tell you about our other sponsor, the Internet Society. Uh, we know we can get internet access from space thanks to low Earth orbit or LEO satellites. As these systems are being launched, now is the opportunity for all of us to help shape conversations and ensure that these LEO systems help build a bigger, stronger internet that's accessible to everyone. These LEO systems have great promise to help address the digital divide and connect the unconnected. They can also support emergency responders and help get critical internet access during natural disasters. So there's big opportunities on the horizon, but also many questions. 
questions. Are these systems going to be affordable to the people who need them most? Will they have the capacity to support all the people who want or need access? Will they support all the open standards and internet technologies that we care about and need? What policy issues do they raise? How can we ensure competition? What about the environment? The Internet Society, which is a global nonprofit advocating for open and trusted internet, dives into these questions in a new paper, Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access. You can download this paper for free and share it with others. Just go to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. That's internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. Uh, back to the news. Broadcom CEO Hock Tan says he will not raise prices for VMware customers if and when the Broadcom VMware merger goes through. The CEO published a message to that effect to, I guess, try to signal to regulators, hey, please allow this to happen. <coughs> really? Okay. <laughs> uh, so we talked last week about how Broadcom is now under review by the EU, the UK and the US competition authorities all committing to investigating the takeover on the basis of the statement that Broadcom made to shareholders stating that profits would increase from 4 billion to 12 over 12 billion a year. Um, and most analysts have stated that they expect Broadcom to increase prices significantly to meet those goals. And, you know, that's obviously something that competition authorities don't want to see happen. You don't just take over a company, turn it into a monopoly and then extract profits. There should be a, a compete competition in the market. And VMware doesn't have a lot of competition. So it is going to be a tough ask. So for him to make a press release and say... I've continued to see questions in the press reports about whether we intend to raise prices on VMware products. The answer is simple, no. I don't know, Drew, you know? <laughs> I was very surprised to hear him say, to go on the record saying he won't raise prices. I realize he feels compelled to say that uh, because he's under this regulatory scrutiny, but it also feels like not really a promise he can keep. Like, yeah, it doesn't, no, I don't think too many people will take this in the way that it's intended. And it does feel like the CEO has to say what the CEO has to say, what the CEO is expected to say. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so if you dig into his statement, he says, uh, so how does he, so he doesn't really offer much to say, this is how I'm going to make those profitability goals. But anyway, let's read it. He, he said, in short, we plan a no customer left behind approach. Can't really work out what that means, but let's go with it. Broadcom has the scale and capacity to invest major resources in R&D innovation and build on VMware's talented team by recruiting the best engineers, an advantage that has historically allowed us to develop better technology and product solutions. All right, fine. But that doesn't mean you can't, you know, you know that doesn't increase the profit margin. That decreases right, that's spending it you, money, yeah, mm -hmm. not, not okay. making money, yeah. All right, so the second part was by investing in an innovating and infrastructure software in VMware's broad portfolio, we will bring our customers greater flexibility and deliver new solutions to help them connect, scale, and protect. Okay, so what he's saying here is that by investing with new engineers, he's going to bring new products to market and therefore grow the total right. amount of money that they can earn. Right. Mm. That's what that sounds and like. That's what that sounds like. So we intend to apply this formula for success by investing in an operating VMware with a concerted focus on growth and innovation while profit. So, okay, so you're going to grow the company by investing in it and you're saying that you can, but he didn't say anything about growing revenue. He just said about growing profits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're going to say now, well, I'm going to grow the profit margin from four to 12, I don't, I don't know. It depends on the competition authorities and whether they actually put some sort of monitoring or you know, post-acquisition in place to say you can't do that. And if that happens, I don't know what would be. I, I find this um, not necessarily believable, but, you know, it's hard to imagine that – it's it's not hard to imagine that VMware post-acquisition would rename all of its products and then increase the prices. Yep. <laughs> you know, really or something not, like yeah. that. I mean, yeah. that's why he bought it. <laughs> this or is release a, a new version and say, well, that's not the same product. It didn't increase in price. We got a new product <laughs> because we renamed it or rebranded it or something. And uh, I don't know. It just doesn't – I don't see how they can grow VMware's market share. They're already struggling to hold on to their numbers right now. Enterprises are turning down. They're – and a lot of people are spending less on on-prem as they move off-prem into the cloud. In theory, you could drive people to VMware on AWS, VMware on GCP. But I'm not necessarily convinced that that there's more money to be made by charging customers more. Will customers spend more? And there was also another session where he spoke about, we're just going to focus on the top 600 customers because they're the ones who spend money with us. Well, that 
you know, that's that an goes against thing. the no customer left behind position that he just yeah. So, out, I, so there's conflicting stuff here that I don't quite understand. So yeah. So vSphere is now named uh, V Globe, and it's twenty percent more expensive. <laughs> yeah, V three dimensional circle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, as you said, I think this is something he felt like he had to say, but he's caught between two masters. One is the the you know the public markets who want to see revenue, and the other is the regulators who may not let this go through if they think prices are going to go up. So I guess he had to say this, but yeah, I I wouldn't hold him to it, frankly. No, we'll see how it goes. Yep, we'll keep looking, and and I just thought to bring that to your attention because uh, okay. <laughs> if you not, do get an increased bill, you can just uh, send them back a link to that blog post and be like, oh, yeah? yeah. What, what, what about it? Was this? Uh... <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, Taiwanese chip maker TSMC has promised to make more advanced chips at its US based plant, which is set to open in 2024. Bloomberg reports that TSMC will make the more advanced four nanometer chips at the plant, which is a change from initial plans to focus only on five nanometer chips. Uh, Bloomberg says pressure from the US government and Apple, a TSMC customer, led to the change. Yeah, so we often see Silicon Valley say, like, the government can't do anything and why did they get out of the way? There is no question here that the US government has made this happen in record time, right? Mm. And this is what you pay your taxes for, is to get, you know, the US decided that it's a strategic issue and even a geopolitical issue to be able to have chip manufacturing on the US soil. And they've lent on TSMC at the government level, like on the Taiwanese government, to make, if you notice how quick this has happened. These these factories have been talked about for a very long time, and then all of a sudden they're happening. Uh, and these factories are very large, so if they're set to open in 2024, that is an incredibly quick process. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bloomberg is saying they're making four nanometer chips and a change from the five. I've seen reports at three, so who knows where it'll end up at. But And I believe that Taiwan is talking about shipping 5,000 engineers to the U.S. to get the plant up and operational Mm. and established. Uh, But that's nothing because Taiwan has over 50,000 operational engineers, so they're sending a very small number relative, and most of them will want to go back. They don't want to live in the U.S. is from what I've heard. Um, So I think it's just a sign of what the government can achieve in any country. They can do big things when, when the decision is really made for it. I mean, I think it's good for the U.S. to have more high-end chip manufacturing uh, onshore. I think it's less great for TSMC and, frankly, Taiwan. Taiwan's chip industry is, uh, no pun intended, a bargaining chip in keeping the U.S. interested in a free and independent Taiwan. Uh, So, yeah, I could see some reluctance on their part to be like, but... uh, Yeah. Well, the flip side is that if something was to happen... You can't defend Taiwan if you don't have the chip manufacturing right. side. You can't sustain weapons production. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in the, look at what's happening in Russia. You know they're not able to access certain things. So there is a trade-off here, and I don't know that you know Taiwan's in a solid bargaining position right. at this point in time. So giving in at this point for a partial transfer yeah. probably makes sense. It does. It's the interesting. The location is interesting. Texas. Uh, no, is, it's Arizona. Course, it's Arizona. Arizona, right? Yep. Okay. Some of it's in Texas, and some of it's in Arizona. There's um. Uh, there is a uh, wafer manufacturer who just set up in Texas this week, and that's very important because that's the the silicon wafers that the chips get built on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm still struggling to understand how Texas has enough water and electricity for that sort of plant, but um, it's possible that factories will now actually do their own energy generation or have their own backup power generation, enough for you know several days' worth of power. Uh, and they're also taking steps to recycle water. So I've heard previously that the plants in Arizona are now filtering and reusing their own water so that they actually don't need a lot. So perhaps the concerns or the environmental concerns about these plants are mitigated because of you know uh, what they're doing. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Water and power both are going to be issues for the American West, particularly uh, states like Texas and Arizona. Uh, I just read an article in the Washington Post about the Colorado River, which provides both water and hydroelectric power to Western mm. states, including Arizona. And we've been in like a 20-year drought, which means uh, they're anticipating water levels could get so low at hydroelectric dams that there won't be enough flow to actually run the turbines that generate electricity. And that could happen as soon as July of next year. So uh, yeah, we're in for some interesting times with uh, mm. the demand these plants are going to put on uh, electricity and water. Yeah, and Texas doesn't connect to the national grid. So <laughs> there's that too. <laughs> for example, and you know, Arizona is such a long way from anywhere that you know it's vulnerable in that sense. But yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read both those stories. We'll move on. Uh, mobile telecom companies are experimenting with using Starlink satellite internet for backhaul in some regions. 
Yeah, so we've um, seen a lot of talk about Starlink, but this is a, a KDDI, is a Japanese mobile co, and they've announced that they're using Starlink at their first location as a backhaul to a mobile phone tower. Now, I think this is a great use of LEO. Not all mobile phone towers need, you know, hardwired fiber optic, you know, hundreds of gigabits of bandwidth like uh, urban towers mm-hmm. do. And for small towns, this might be a way to get 5G coverage at a very low practical cost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side here uh, is that even if you could use the LEO network as a backup, it still works. So maybe you've got, or maybe you're provisioning the tower and you're waiting for the fiber to come in and the fiber might take quite a long time to trench in or arrive or whatever. And so you could use this type of stuff. So this is a good use of this, I think. I think it's interesting to see this happening, um, especially as the space networks prove themselves out. Yeah, and good news for Starlink and other uh, satellite internet providers who want to open up as many fronts as they can for business opportunities. Yeah, and rural ones at that. Right. Because yep. they can't. They don't want to – you can't have too many Starlink customers in the city. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't – there's just too many potential customers and you, there'll be overlap on the spectrum and all that, and then you just can't have that many in the dense area, so – Uh, And speaking of Starlink, our last story for the day, the company recently received approval from the U.S. Federal Communications Commission to launch new versions of its satellites that aim to improve the performance of the network. Uh, The company is approved to launch and operate up to 7,500 Gen 2 satellites. So a few weeks back, we talked about the degraded performance of Starlink overall, and the general sense I get from my reading and research is that there's not enough satellites up there to forward the traffic. And increasingly, we have more <clears throat> base stations down on the ground, so there's multiple places where congestion can occur. Uh, having previously given uh, sort of limited approval to a launch, 4,435 satellites, and then Starlink went on to take a pretty aggressive sort of, we want to launch 30,000 satellites. Uh, this <laughs> approval br- confirms the existing approval at 7,500. Mm. It's a, actually a slight reduction for the second phase of their rollout. Um, but the most important part here isn't actually the number of satellites, it's the access to uh, spectrum in space. You can go and read the, the FCC release. as a link to the FCC notice if you want the details. Uh, but in this particular case, they've approved... Um, uh, satellites for star SpaceX to operate in three bands, uh, a low Earth orbit for the main, for around the equatorial orbits, another one for the, uh, arc, the uh, pole orbits, the ones that go around the Arctic and Antarctica, but most importantly, a second tier of satellites and around the 600-kilometre mark, and they will be the ones who form the high-performance backbone. So you're setting up for these Gen 2 satellites, some of which are very large, and they will be able to send data between satellites. So up until now, the satellites haven't been communicating in space. Your message goes up to the satellite and then back down to the nearest ground station, except on the Arctic uh, orbits. And now that's changing. They will have a second tier, so it'll look like an ECMP-type spine or a CLO architecture, and that should increase the capacity for a lot of traffic and actually put them in the market for low latency if they can get that up and running. However... Starlink didn't get everything it wanted. It didn't get all the spectrum that it asked for. It didn't get any new spectrum, which is important for transmitting data, and mostly because the other four satellite operators who are out there are saying we want all of, we want it all too. We want all of what Starlink wants and more. You know, so the usual, you know, regulatory argy bargy type stuff. So, yeah, interesting times in the space race, I suppose, in that you know satellite network race. I'm trying to imagine the network diagram for a leaf spine satellite network. That's kind of mind boggling. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine the software system that says I'm going to send the data from here to here and route it through this. And like, that's just. Mm. Yeah. And, and the distances it's. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, the satellite's got to have a laser link from here to here or, you know, however they're doing it. Just right. mind boggling. It's a bit like uh, what Loon was doing, you know, building a mesh network, right. a dynamic mesh network in space and time, but in the clouds you know this is doing it in space which is very interesting um although someone did flag to me this week that uh somebody's been doing some research on the environmental impact and they're highlighting that the launch of this network will actually result in five thousand tons of esoteric metals actually burning up in the atmosphere in the right at the very top of the atmosphere and nobody's really doing any research to investigate what is the environmental impact of that 
So uh, not a, and in addition to all of the all of the rocket launchers that actually have to carry all of this mass into space. So there is some concern starting to be flagged for this because that's a lot of satellites, and really until the Starship, you know, today we're seeing the Falcon 9s fly with 50 satellites a time, well, 50 satellites isn't going to get you 30,000 satellites. Right. Because they only last four to five years before they fall, you know, run out of fuel. So be interesting to see. There are lot, lots to come on that. Right. Well, that does wrap up the news portion. Uh, we'll have the links in the show notes if you want to go read more. Um, stick around for our Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking with Thousand Eyes on SaaS outages. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we'll explore two outages of big-time cloud applications with sponsor Thousand Eyes, a Cisco company. These outages share a common thread in that the network was up and the applications were reachable, but problems on the back end meant that applications weren't available. So our guest, Mike Hicks, who is Principal Solutions Analyst at Thousand Eyes, is going to share insights about what happened and suggest takeaways that you could apply to your own organization to minimize downtime. Uh, So Mike, welcome to the podcast. And before we dive into the outage stories, can you give us a quick reminder of what Thousand Eyes does, how it gets visibility into internet performance? Quickest way to think about Thousand Eyes is with a Google Maps of the internet. So by looking at the what's going on around from there, we can get a sense of where the outages are, what's being impacted, and how everything sort of mets together. We do this through a series of vantage points that sort of distributed around the globe, and therefore we can actually start to see how everything is, is operating and, uh, and impacting each other. Okay, so lots of vantage points from around the world to measure internet performance. You bring it all together uh, and look at it and provide essentially graphs and information to customers. Yeah, correct, correct, yeah. And it's all real time. So essentially what we're actually looking at, like I say, is what's happening now. So I can actually look and I can see, is there an issue? Is a butterfly flapping its wing in one part of the world causing a tsunami in the other? (laughs) All right. So we're here to talk about (laughs) outages at uh, Microsoft and Google. And a lot of time when we hear about, uh, you know, big outages, it's often the network issue or maybe uh, a power outage or something. But these two examples are a little different. So let's dive in. And the first one was a problem that hit Microsoft Teams uh, summer of 2022. What happened? Yeah, like that. It's always a network. It's always a network. Um, we come down from there. Always come down from there. And the, the reason for that really is that uh, you know because that's the first thing we think about. We go to connect. We can't get through there. We hit the keyboard harder. It's therefore that's a network. That's a problem. My better wear strings broken between the two there. But 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 this one was 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 kind of interesting. It came around like I say. It was a global uh, impact around from there. And basically what was happening was you could actually get to the front door. So you could actually make the connectivity, you could actually sort of reach the service or the services for there, but it was in that back end connection where we had to get through from there. So from a thousand eyes perspective, we could actually sort of start to see the error conditions come back. We could see sort of service unavailable. So HTTP 500 errors coming back from that system, which told us that the network itself was up. So again, we can't blame the network in this case, mm-hmm. but the impact of the user was still the same, right? So we still weren't able to get to it. What the interesting thing was as well was that that this was um, uh, a global outage. So that also is indicative that it's not necessarily the network. Um, yeah, as much as everything's linked together, there's common aggregating points around there from a network point of view in terms of the ISPs and the peering and we've got from there. Realistically, when we start to see something is globally impacting, you can almost make the assumption that it is within the application itself. It's within the application infrastructure itself uh-huh. that, that went around from there. And it was then validated, like I say, we saw the errors coming back. The, the, the really interesting thing, or interesting thing to me, I mean, all outages are interesting <laughs> in some way, but, but the interesting thing I found about this one was, was the restoration period that happened from there. So you know, Microsoft came out, they sort of uh, understood what the, the, the issue was. They said, yes, we're having a problem. We realize this is what's going on. We can see what's, what's happening here. But when they actually started to come back, they actually took notice of what was happening. So this was a fairly long period of time. It's like a three-hour outage where they actually go through from there. Mm-hmm. It primarily impacted sort of me down here in the, the bottom of the world, um, in the APAC region from there. And that was really because it was our time of day. So it was um, sort of right in the business hours uh, where we were sort of up and operating. So although it was this global impact, it was just it was just like so really started to impact uh, this, this region down here. This was recognized by Microsoft. And as they started to bring the stuff back up, you can actually see, and you can, you can see this through, um, so it's sort of a thousand eyes data. There was a really nice stepped recovery. And this recovery was where they were basically uh, shifting load around. So they actually started to sort of move, make changes and do uh, a workaround effectively in their backend systems. But it was almost like a follow the sun. So everything started to come back up 
and, uh, and you know, we, we sort of saw it was like it was like watching when you see those time graphs for the daylight is coming across there on the, uh-huh. the big maps and there. Yeah, yeah. We can actually see this progressing. And so, so from the Thousand Ice platform, you can actually sort of switch and do like move five minutes, move five minutes, and you can see the sunlight rising across the country, followed by these green um, uh, lights where service was coming back online. So Microsoft realized, okay, this outage is happening and it's affecting customers who are up and working in the Asia Pacific region. So let's bring that back before we worry about you know, EMEA and then Europe and then the US. They could prioritize customers who were immediately affected. Yeah, that's what it appeared to be. Looking at that pattern coming back to there, which which I thought was really thoughtful and uh, and and showed they understood the impact of the problem. Mm-hmm. And 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 what did the problem turn out to be? Since it wasn't the network. Yes. So the problem in this case was actually the official cause was like mentioned to be a a bad deployment or a bad uh, update from there. And what it impacted was an internal storage connection. So it was that connection between, say, the front and the back end. So Mm -hmm. so again, and I think we mentioned this, we mentioned this in the introduction there. There's this commonality in terms of it's not just the application, but it's also effectively some central aggregating point within there. So in this case, it was actually the connection to an internal storage device where we're actually going to sort of pull information back from there. So as I said, we could actually connect to the front service. When I went to this internal storage device, I couldn't actually get the connection. And it would have just been some sort of, uh, again, this is an assumption, it would have been some sort of push uh, of, a, of a configuration change or, or a deployment of a new service mm-hmm. that sort of had this impact to actually break that back-end connection. So I could get to the front door, I just couldn't go beyond there. So that's why the service was unavailable. Okay. All right, so let's move on to the Google outage. What, what happened there? And I think this was also in yeah. the summer of 2022. Yes, it was, yeah. The, the summer of uh, the summer, <laughs> the of, summer of outages. The summer of, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We went across there. Um, and actually sort of interesting, you know, like we, I think you mentioned up front, sort of power outages in there. It was particularly hot in the summer as well. For you in the Northern Hemisphere, it was... Uh, Actually, it was a fairly mild winter down here, but uh, but but basically, what happened in this case was uh, the, the the situation where one function of the of, of Google actually went down. It was a Google search uh, functionality, and this was underpinning so many different services that the that Google were offering there. So things like the map, mm. the, the mail staff, the Google Meets around from there. It was all connected because of this central point. So if we think about the architecture and application, you know, the traditional way, I'm very old, we go back, we had client server network, from there the application was centralized. We've now got this situation where the application is distributed, but also relies and interacts with multiple different services, just from an economy of scale to actually do this. Mm-hmm. It's easier to actually sort of move this stuff around and have it from there. But if one of those central points goes down or a fundamental building block for all of those that they rely on, which in this case was the Google search, then we get this failure, this connectivity issue, whereas we can get to the service, but we can't do anything. And it starts to cause this problem. So, so again, in this situation, Google recognized what the, uh, the, 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 the outage was or what was the cause of the outage was, and they put out sort of messages around from there. From a thousand nice perspective, we actually sort of saw this outage coming from there. And we could actually see the connectivity again to that front door. We might be able to get to it. We got to it. But then effectively, when you start to, to do anything in terms of a search, it just spun. Basically, you got sort of no information. You couldn't get back. We couldn't get out around from there. Implications for this, really, I could say, was because we were thinking, or if it was a user, you're thinking, okay, I don't use Google search. I go somewhere else. I actually do something else. But it was actually connecting to and it was relying on it. So for the maps to actually work, we had to go. It goes for an internal process where it does the the, the search functionality. Mm-hmm. So what this meant was then, if I'm actually trying to get from point A to B, I rarely leave my house. But if I <laughs> needed to go down from somewhere, I couldn't actually you know do it. I had to go to an alternate map system to actually uh, do this because I couldn't find where the address was I wanted to go. It wouldn't actually appear on the system. Right. It tells you how interdependent Google is on that search function. If search not being available also affects maps and you know mail search and stuff, which you know maybe okay, Google search is gone. Maybe I can't figure out where I want to go for coffee. But you know maps that could have implications for transport, logistics, delivery services, that kind of thing. It could have a significant business impact. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of puts everything back. And it, it doesn't, another thing, you know, we, we talk about the network outages and, yeah, you know, we don't blame the network, but also what we we, we started to, to to see here is this, this 
common aggregating point. And this was a sort of a pattern we started to see emerging through the, the, the summer there was this, this increase in the sense of application outages and these, this, um, this, this commonality, these aggregating points, this reliance, as you say, on one particular function within there. And again, this is, this is, is by design, but you can actually understand what happens there. If a network goes out, given the way we're designed and the stuff around from there, there's a redundant path. You know, you, you might get a degradation in service where we get a latency uh, mm. issue from there. But unless someone sort of, you know, comes with a backhoe and digs up the fibre and actually severs your last mile connection around from there, you're going to have some form of connectivity. If we lose one of these central parts to an application or the application architecture it relies on, and it might be something as subtle as um, you know, an API call to a, a payment system from there. And therefore, then all of a sudden you can't transact. You can't process transactions, yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely, absolutely. It's therefore, with now now losing money becomes an impact uh, from there. So it's, it's sort of critical to be able to see everything. So, yep, I can see up to the front door, but I also want to see how does that work? What's my service delivery chain look like that goes right through that process? So what are the takeaways for the rest of us who, one, aren't operating at a Google or Microsoft scale, and two, it's not like I can send a, you know, a ticket to Microsoft because Teams is down. That's, uh, I'm not going to get anywhere with that. What, what, what can I learn from what's happening in these you know, giant systems? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, so the first thing is, you know, sort of we, we talk about this concept of the application having these aggregating points basically around from there. You, know, you can try sending a ticket to Microsoft to see how that gets you. <laughs> but, you know, the, also the, the the point that we just sort of want sort to of make in here is that not every system is stable. Outages will occur. These problems will occur. It's critical to be able to understand what they are. Yeah, if, if we, we're talking about, so, again, I'm sort of based down in Australia, from a power utility uh, system down there. If my power goes out, I want to know I like what I get fixed, obviously. But if, if I go to the, the actual status page and it tells me that everything's good, then I'll just become sort of confused and angry around from there. So what I really mm-hmm. want to be able to do is tell me why. Tell me who is the responsible party. Tell me if you can give an estimate how long it's going to be. But really what I want to know is there is a problem. I'm not alone. I'm not making this up. I'm not dreaming. You know, my dog hasn't bitten through my, my cable coming through from there. It is it is uh, a, a systemic problem around from there that, that's being solved. So that's that's the you know sort of the, the thing. It's the information. If I want to understand what's going on around from there. But the other thing is that you know, not everybody's going to be able to build a redundancy. We're not all Googles. We're not around from there. So what can I take out from that? So if I understand what my service delivery chain looks like, I understand what my dependencies are, I can now start to, to sort of um, uh, work around basically or have redundancy and processes in place. You know, we talk an awful lot about technology, but a big part of using that information is to actually sort of enable the process and the people to, to sort of do this. And one of these outcomes can really be is I know where it is. If I lose this, this particular application, I don't want my business to stop. I can actually, you know, in the case of the the, the Google Maps, like you talked about logistics services, we can in, uh, we understand where it is. We can see their problem is. We, there's nothing we can remediate or we can we can fix. What our workaround is is we're going to shift to just for today. We're going to go to a different map. Make mm-hmm. sure you use Apple Maps or whatever it is for for, for that situation mm-hmm. there. And the same can apply. You know, if I'm I'm, I'm talking about sort of messaging systems. Switch from there. Let's go to um, you know we're, we're going to use a, a, an alternate system just for today or just until this problem is resolved. That way, my business carries on. Just having a plan. So if you know we usually do video conferences on Teams, but if Teams happens to be out, we can fall back to I don't know maybe somebody's got Slack and we can do a video over Slack or we'll, we're bringing Zoom for the day. That kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? Exactly right. We can start to shift where we are. So it's yeah, you know, we understand there's a problem. How are we going to work around it? You know, back to our Google Maps for for the internet uh, perspective. There, you know, once we're there, we know where the, the blockage is on the road. We can work around it. There's a speed camera down here. I want to avoid it. Yeah, those types of things. Okay. And last question, you know, just for, for my own perspective, you know, as a, a network operator or someone who's delivering a service to an organization, do, do I get anything? From knowing, yeah, okay, uh, the the network is fine. I Thousand Eyes is showing me the network is fine, but I still can't do my work. What, what's what's the business benefit for me from a Thousand Eyes perspective of having Thousand Eyes to tell me, yeah, it's reachable, but there's a problem on the back end. 
Yes, obviously you have that escalation process we can go through. It allows me from a help desk perspective or there to be able to do, again, you know, back to my power utility, if I can actually contact you and we say, yep, no problem, we understand there's a problem, we're with you, here it is, here's your, your, your workaround to actually go from there. But understanding where it is, if I go to a status page and nothing's there, mm-hmm. I want to know in real time what's happening. I'll, but more importantly, how is it impacting me? You know, if there's a major outage on, on a particular system, and this goes a little bit, I guess, into sort of those, those back-end systems um, where the where, where, where something is is impacting, I didn't even know we were using it. But mm-hmm. if I can understand where it is, I can therefore make a decision, okay, going future, um, what do I do around there? And sort of taking that into the planning stage, how can I actually use that information? I'm getting this in real time. I understand that this particular path we take is problematic, this, you know, even when we're going across the internet, this, where we go, where the peering relationships are, we have this, this uh, concern or problem from there. It's, uh, you know, has frequent outages around from there, which actually starts to impact our business or this service we're calling with an API, this third party service from there is, is problematic. It's connected through a particular ISP or, or whatever it happens to be to actually get from there. In my planning stage going forward, I can actually start to to take steps to make sure that we eradicate that or we move away from that or we optimise where we're going to be. And this then starts to move into this whole process as well. This information just isn't for break fix. I can now start to get in this process where I'm actually getting this continuous improvement process around from there. This is how it's made up. My connection's made up. Like you said, this is how we're using. These are services we're using. These are connections there. Is there a point in there where we can actually make an improvement? Can I optimize? Can we take a different route? Can I go to a, like a, a fast internet service? Does that make a difference to my end user experience I'm getting around from there? Okay, so what I'm hearing is it's not just about mean time to innocence. It's also about, you know, sort of planning, capacity analysis based on the information I can get from Thousand Eyes. Like, oh, this link, yes, it's up sometimes, but performance is bad. And I can see other links where maybe I'm getting a better performance and want to switch over that or understand that I've got to, you know, buy a bigger uh, connection because I'm obviously going to need more bandwidth, that kind of thing you're saying. I can do planning and prediction. 100%, 100%. Yeah, you can start to see where, where, you, know, where, where you want to go. But like I said, yeah, a real for me is, is then how can I optimize that performance? How can <laughs> I make it better in the future? Because once I start to do that, I'm moving away from this concept, like I say, of break fix. I'm to getting into a real proactive state. Yeah. 100%. Okay. Uh, so we're at the end of our time. If folks want to find out more, if they want to read uh, the Internet Pulse blog that you're writing on these outages, where should they go? They can find us at the, the Internet Pulse blog. It could be found at uh, thousandeyes.com uh, forward slash blog. Okay. Nice and easy. Thousandeyes.com slash blog. Well, thanks, Mike, for joining us, and thanks to Thousand Eyes for being a sponsor. Uh, if you want more technical content created for networking IT pros, head on over to packetpushers.net to see our library of free technical podcasts and our community blog. We've also got hours of instructional and technical content on YouTube. You can always follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.